verse 1 of Psalm 145 says, I will extol you, my God and King, and I will praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is the most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue, and I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. Father, these baptisms that we just witnessed is all about you and what you're doing and how you're working and about your righteousness. And we want to shout that from the mountaintops. We want to extol that wherever we go. We want our children to hear that, and we want to hear from our children what you are doing. So we say thank you, God. We say thank you for what you've done. And now as we turn to your word and we continue looking into Joshua's life, Father, we want to uh, see how you continue to work together for those that love you and for those that are called according to your purpose. So give me the words um, that I need to say this morning, Father. May they be uh, your words. Uh, May they be pleasing to you because, God, you are my rock and my redeemer. And we thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So I think we just want to celebrate one more time. I mean, so many great things are happening over at Hart High School in the sports and, and drama and the clubs and, and, and all that. And we celebrate that. I mean, the gyms have been packed. But we as Christians, we need to celebrate too. So one more time, let's just praise God for what he's done. Talk, talk to any one of the, the sports teams is so fun. Talk to Andrew Riley. He had a great day yesterday. And just talk about that, but also talk about what God is doing. Do not forget to do that. So, so we are going back to Genesis. This is our fourth week in the series. I know there's some visitors here today. So please, um, um, we're walking through the book of Genesis, and we're in Joshua's life right now, chapter 42 of Genesis. Uh, we will start there, but for this morning, we're going to do a flyover from 42 all the way to 45, verse 8. So buckle your seatbelts again, but I want to show you how God works together. So last week we ended with Joseph working in the palace of Pharaoh. He was in jail, and yet he heard that Pharaoh had this dream that no one could understand. And God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. Pharaoh's dream, and this is what Joseph told him, meant that there would be seven years of a great time. There would be bounty, but then there will be seven years of famine, of, of, of desperation for the people. So Joseph, because he interpreted that dream, because God was raising him up again, Joseph was given the ability and the, 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 the job from the Pharaoh to organize all of the government. And he organized the government so that it would be a central hub in Egypt for the rest of the world to come and gather um, there to get their food and get to their, their grain. He became the second in command in Egypt, only to Pharaoh. And all along Joseph's journey, what we've seen the first um, three weeks as we looked at this, is we've come to Romans 8.28. We started with that week one, and we're going to hit it every single week because that's our anchor for this series. A verse that embodies the life of Joseph. 
So read this verse with me again this week. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Last week we looked at everything, all things. Together we're going to look at that phrase, work together. Say that, work together. So in English there's two words, work together. But in the original language it's one word and it's called sunergio. And it literally means to synergize. That's where we get our word synergy. And, and what that means is that working together of various elements to produce a result greater than the sum of those elements. So there's a lot of things going on. But it's a complicated way to say that it all comes together. God is working to bring everything together for his glory. Not our own, for God's glory. So here's, here's a question to think about as we start. Do you believe and know from your experience or others that seemingly disconnected moments, the downs, the ups, are ultimately working together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purposes? It's just not a pie in the sky. Oh, this is how it's going to be. That's facts. That's what God promises. So let me ask, is this a reality in your life? Because Romans 8.28 is a, one of the most familiar verses that we all know. Even non-Christians have heard this verse. Those of you that don't know Christ, you know this verse. But do you that know Christ really believe this? And not just believe it here, but live it in your heart and look for God to be working all things together. In Joseph, we see this. And that's why I'm excited to bring Joseph week after week because faith, and we learn about faith all through the Bible, but faith backs up and it widens the angle of the camera. Um, to look at the long arc of our lives and not fix on these momentary things that are right in front of our eyes. Yes, we have to go there. And yes, they're real and they're painful. But to recognize what God is doing over the long scheme from Genesis all the way to Revelations, from your birth to your death, God is working for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And Joseph demonstrates this more beautifully than almost anywhere else in the Bible. So we're going to see that in our flyover today of Genesis 42 through Genesis 45. So we're going to start with Genesis 42, 1 through 5. Um, let's just read this together. We're not going to read them all together, but let's focus on these passages. So when Jacob heard in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing here looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we will die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brothers for the fear some harm might come to them. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. So the dream that Pharaoh dreamed has now come to, to reality. 
So we've got to stop here and we've got to look at that. This, this famine has not only reached Egypt, but it's reached Canaan. And if you remember from our study last week, this was the breadbasket region of that area. So this is like bad, really, really bad. And people are, 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 are suffering. So Jacob hears that there's food over in Egypt and he sends his sons. But he says, I'm going to send 10 of my sons, not 12 of my sons. Because 12 minus Joseph, who they thought was dead. 11 minus Benjamin, who was his favorite or his youngest, connected to his wife that had passed. So there's 10 sons that, that Jacob sends. So Benjamin, first time we've heard his name in this study, he's the youngest brother of all. Benjamin is the only brother that Joseph had that was his full biological brother. Their mother was Rachel. And during the birth of Benjamin, Rachel dies. So now there's this famine, and Jacob says, take these ten sons and go. Go down to Egypt and get some grain, but you're not taking Benjamin. Jacob is doing what we all would do. He's holding the only living link to his wife that he loved. And we do that sometimes as well, don't we? When we lose something with one hand, we tend to hold on to that other thing tighter and tighter and tighter with the other hand. So the ten sons go down to Egypt, but they do not know that Joseph is second in command. And we continue the story in verse 6. Let's read this part together as well through 9. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied, we have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. So this is a fascinating moment in the story. So much suspense. Stuff good movies are made of. They, 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 there they are, right before Joseph. And they don't recognize him. That's because they weren't looking for him. They thought he was put out of their lives for good when they put him in that shaved bald like the other Egyptian officials in that call. They always shaved their heads. And, and, and what else I learned this week? He probably was wearing a fake goatee, and his fake goatee is made of horse hair. And that's just weird, but that's how they, that's how they dressed as officials back in those days. So Joseph looks at them. They look at him. And they don't recognize him. But the text says he not only recognized them, but he remembers. That's a key word. Anytime we see that in Scripture, he remembers. So, so when they bow down to Joseph, the text says they bow down. When they bow down to Joseph, they weren't just bowing down because they knew it was Joseph. They were bowing down because it was royalty. And that's what people do to royalty. They kept... And when they bow down, it says he not only recognized them, but remembered them. He remembers the dream that he had back years before. 
the dream that he shared with his brothers and his dad about them bowing down, these, these sheaves bowing down before each other, this son and moon bowing down, and they remembered that. But it's not, for him, it's not a happy memory because he remembers all the events that were triggered by the, those dreams, the pain, the anguish, the conflict, the separation. So, so he reacts to the trauma that has happened in his past. Don't we do that as well? He reacts to the trauma that's happened in his past, and he treats them like strangers. He's harsh with them. He's mean to them. And one of the themes of the story of Joseph is forgiveness. Forgiving those that have offended us and harmed us in the past. Who is it in your life that has offended you or harmed you or hurt you in the past that you're holding on to? Sometimes when we are in the journey of forgiving the offenders of our past, it begins with us asking ourselves a very significant question. What do we see when we see the offenders of our past? What do we see in them and look at them? What do we remember when they pop into our mind or when we are confronted with them? Do, do, do we only see the offense? Only recognize the things or the thing that they did wrong to you? What do you see? Who do you see? Joseph was not ready to forgive yet because all he could see was the pain and the trauma that that had caused in their life. So Joseph just treats them harshly and he says, you guys are spies. He knew they weren't. They're like, no, 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 we're not, we're not spies. We're just hungry. Joseph says, prove it. Prove that you're not spies. And he asks them if they have any other family members. And very awkwardly, like, yeah, we have brothers. Well, we had two brothers. One's not with us anymore, and the other one's too young that, that he wasn't allowed to travel with us. And Joseph responds, the only way you're to prove that you're not spies is to go home, get your younger brother, and bring him back down here. If you don't bring him, you will never see me again. And if they never see him again, they will not get grain, they will not get food, and they will die. But not all of you are going back. I'm going to put all of you in jail except for one of you. That one can go back to the, your father, pick up Benjamin, and come back. So he does that. But three days later, as he's chewing on this and thinking about it, he changes his mind. And he says, I'm just going to keep one of you. So he, he, he puts Simeon in jail, and he releases the other nine to go back to get their brother. There is, pow there is something powerful when that happens as Joseph's plan starts to unfold. The brothers begin to talk to each other. They, they, they don't know that Joseph understands because he's always talking through an interpreter. But he understands what they are saying. They did not know that he was second in command and could understand what they were saying and had the power. So let's pick it up in verse 21, verse 20 through 24. Read this with me again. Speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. 
Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked? But you would not listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. In the whole Joseph narrative, there are seven times where Joseph weeps. It's a powerful study. We're going to see three of them today. But, but, but Joseph weeps. It's a, it's a powerful moment. They had no idea that Joseph could understand them. And what is he overhearing when he hears them talk? Regret. He's hearing regret. And maybe for the first time in his life, he hears what part of the story looked like. All he knew before was that the entire family wanted to get rid of him. My brothers hate me. They, they wanted to get rid of me. Now he hears regret that maybe they're not all in this together. Maybe they have regretted what they've done over the last years. And something begins to penetrate his heart. He starts to get more tender towards his brothers and what God is doing here. So verse 25 says this. Let's keep reading together. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the man's sacks with grain. But he also gave special instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. So this is not a trap. Later, we'll see that there's a trap coming. This is an attempt to give provisions to his family out of a hurting heart. Verse 26 Let's read this one. So the brothers loaded their donkeys with grain and headed for home. But when they stopped for the night and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money in the top of his sack. Look, he explained to his brothers, my money has been returned here to my sack. Then their hearts sank. Even though Joseph was not quite ready to forgive not quite ready to say, hey guys, it's me, I'm your brother. He decides that he's not going to let the trauma of his past define him. He's going to let some good come out of the past, out of that trauma, out of that hurt, and it's not going to define him. He may not have been completely ready to go there and reveal himself and face his brothers, but sometimes... I'm going to do something. Sometimes it may help to work our way to where we have to deal with the hurt. Sometimes it's, uh, it's appropriate to take steps in that direction, and you're going to get hurt, and the door's going to get slammed in your face, and you're going to recoil, and then you go back again, and you go back again. Stop just sitting there and just wallowing in the trauma of the past. Joseph did not. He, through an act of compassion, slips money into their sacks. Not because he is okay with everything they did, but because they needed it. Mercy will pave the way to forgiveness. Say that with me. Mercy will help pave the way to forgiveness. Now, I wonder if, if some of us that are struggling with forgiveness need to consider letting mercy run through us towards those who have offended us. That does not mean we have to feel good about it right now. Does not, we don't have to say everything's okay. 
does not mean we're even ready to forgive, but what it does mean is it cracks open the possibility of reconciliation. Who is it in your life right now where you need to start moving in that direction? Start cracking open that door of reconciliation, healing in your heart. When the brothers find the money as they're heading back home, they freak out. Pharaoh is going to think we stole this money. And even though they, they, they have been given an act of mercy, they're still struggling. They could not see it as mercy because of the guilt that they were carrying. Because of what is harboring and the bitterness and the guilt that's been in their heart for all these years. Because of what they have done. They could not see the act of God's grace and his providence in his life. And that's why as we walk through this series, it's one thing to look back on your deathbed and say, oh, look how God has worked. But it's another thing to be in the process of it and say, look at what God is doing right now. To see it with a wide angle. But that's how guilt works in our lives. When we carry around guilt for whatever reason, we, we go through life shamed. And it affects the lens through which we see life and we see the people around us, how we see ourselves. Even if, we, if someone tries to do something nice for us, we can't see it because we feel so guilty or even angry and we put walls up and things haven't been fixed yet. And we all have to be reminded of some good news. When we yield our life to Jesus, to his gospel, when we understand the crucifixion and the resurrection and what that's all about, that in the cross of Jesus, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our burdens that we carry because, because of the effects of sin, it is crucified. It is no longer there in God's eyes. And that's what we have to see. That means we are free from guilt, free from our own poor choices, our mistakes, our sin. Not the consequences of it. We'll still have consequences, but we're free from that carrying that guilt wherever we go. So the anchor verse to this whole series, we read it earlier, Romans 8, 28. But that's part of chapter 8 of Romans. And Romans 8, verse 1 starts out this way, 1 and 2. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Read that with me. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Why would you not choose this? Those of you that don't know Christ and you're sitting here hard-hearted towards Christ, he's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you freedom. And Christians that are sitting here holding on to all this garbage from the past, why don't you choose this? Take that verse Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and put it on a sticky note this weekend and stick it on the rear view mirror of your car so every time you look backwards, you see it. Put it on your mirror in the morning. I said, because of Christ, there is no condemnation. And if God sees us that way, we need to see ourselves this way. If God sees you this way, you need to see the person that has caused the hurt in your life this way as well. It's hard, but Christ can do that. 
Somebody may need to hear what Paul says about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Read this one with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Or how about the psalmist? I love this passage. Romans 30, I mean, Psalms 32. Finally, I confess all my sins to you, and you stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. How much of my guilt? Oh. Church, are you living that way? I'm afraid we don't. I'm afraid we don't. But what promise we have in Christ. Joseph's brothers struggled because they had not yet been set free. Their guilt was so heavy, heavy that they could not see the mercy of the money stuffed in their packs. So they continued towards home. They make it back to their father Jacob. And they say, ah, oh, bad news. We have some grain. Well, we lost another brother. And Jacob loses it. Verse 36, Jacob explained, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is going against me. And the 42 ends with Jacob saying, no. Verse 38, Jacob replied, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead and he is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to the grave. And as we go to chapter 43, things are about to get worse. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had bought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, Go back and buy us a little more food. Judah, the same Judah from chapter 38, remember that weird chapter that we read? He stands up. And he argues with his dad. He said, we can't go back without Benjamin. And they go back and forth. There's a very interesting chapter. Go home, home and read the rest of uh, 43 this afternoon. And Judah finally convinces his dad to send Benjamin back. And his dad says, pack your bags, but in your bags, take some provisions along. The best of our land to give to this man. Who he doesn't even know is his son. He just needs grain. So in verse 13, he says, take your brother, go back to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man, so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. There's a lot there. I mean, he's hungry, but there's more there. We'll come back to that another time. So they make it to Egypt, second trip. Joseph sees them coming up the road. There's a cloud of dust, and they're... And, 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 <laughs> And he tells his servants, go out and meet them. And when you get out there, tell them, hey, we want to have lunch with you. Come into our house. Can you imagine what they're going through? Terrifies the brothers. Terrifies them. They're like, we're goners. He heard about the money. He's coming in and he's going to kill us. And as soon as the brothers go into the house, what's the first thing they do when they come to the first, the butler or whoever was there? They begin to defend themselves, the passage says. You don't understand. It wasn't our fault. We, we paid back the money from last time. We found, we found the money in our sack. 
The donkey ate the receipt. We can't prove it, but it's... And the household manager says this in verse 23. Relax. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father. You think he's been hanging around with Joseph a little bit? The God of your father must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know I received your payment. Then he released Simeon and brought them out to them. So they gather to eat. And there's this powerful moment when Joseph comes in. The brothers do what we all do when we come into royalty. They stand up. And they're in order from oldest to youngest. Is who is who? Benjamin. And then they bow down before Joseph. Just in honor of who he is. And what does Joseph do again? Verse 30. He loses it. Just loses it. Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brothers. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. Something is happening inside of Joseph because he's beginning to see, to see, despite all of the seemingly disconnected parts of his life, all the things that he thought were lost, and they're now coming together in a, in, a, in a way that he could not even imagine, and he's overwhelmed. He's broken. And he gets himself, you know, ever do that before? Quick, fix my up. I'm going to go out for dinner. He gets out to dinner. They sit at separate tables, but he keeps sending seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths over to Benjamin. The brothers then begin to head home thinking, Oh, sorry. I gotta get some water. (laughs) I know what you feel like, Easton. (laughs) It's hard to talk. Okay. So so they have dinner together. But as we open chapter 44, as we open chapter 44, Joseph tells his brothers to go home in peace. He gives them all the grain that they need. But what does he do again? Puts money on top of their sacks again. Repeat, replay. But that's not it. He does more. He takes a silver cup and he puts it in the top of Benjamin's bag. He thinks, I'm not going to let Benjamin get away from me this time. I've lost him once. I've lost my father. I'm not losing my biological brother. And he plants this cup in Benjamin's bag. The brothers go home thinking, well, that went well. Dinner was a success. We have all the brothers. We're heading back home. And all of a sudden, they see another cloud of dust coming at them. And it's Joseph's men who come up to him and pull him over. Lights flashing. Horses, donkeys neighing. And, and, and they say, what are you doing? Why would you steal from the second in command? Why would you repay his kindness with such evil? And they're like, we didn't take anything. We gave back our money we found the first time. And the brothers then respond, and they probably look back and say, I wish we would have never said this. But this is what they say in verse, verse 9. If you find his cup with any of us, let that man die. And the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. Oops, shouldn't have said that. So one brother at a time opens his bag. See, nothing here. See, nothing here. See, nothing here. And they get to Benjamin, and what's on top? The silver cup. And their hearts drop. And the text says they tore their clothes. 
the clothes because they were so distraught. The Egyptian officials take Benjamin back to Joseph. But this time, the rest of the brothers did not even want to go home and face Dad. They turn around and they go back to Joseph. They would rather be slaves, they'd rather be dead than to face Dad. They go back and they face Joseph, appealing to him that they would become slaves if he would just release Benjamin. And Joseph said, no, only the one that stole my cup needs to stay. The rest of you go home. Chapter 44 18 through 34, we're not going to read the whole thing or any of it, but this might be one of the big, the best advocacy passage in all of Scripture. Joseph, uh, Judah again stands up, the same Judah from chapter 38 that slept with a prostitute, that God had to humble. He stands up and he begs. You can't imagine what's going to happen to my father. He lost his wife. He lost a son who he's crazy about. If we go home and tell him that Benjamin is gone, it'll kill him. This will tear his family apart. And Joseph could not contain it. Look at verse four, chapter 45. We're finally at 45. Told you it would be a quick flyover. I encourage you to go home and read it. So we get to 45. Joseph could no longer stand it anymore. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you! So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. So here's the big reveal, and it's not through a translator this time. It's me. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. And the brothers are shocked by what they are witnessing. And one scholar puts it this way. It's almost as the, the same as the post-resurrection shock of the disciples when they saw Jesus, when they encountered the risen Christ. Here the brothers are standing for the one that they thought was gone away with. They thought was dead. And now yet he's here and he's in charge. And then, and then Joseph in verse 4 says, come closer, he said to them. Come closer. It's kind of like the Gospel of John reports. Jesus said to Thomas, come closer. Put your hand in my side. Place it. I'm alive. It's me. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. you know what? Don't be angry with yourself for selling me to this place. And here comes probably the most, one of the most important passages in this entire story of Joseph. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor, nor, nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive. Huge significance there for the lineage of Christ. And we'll, another week. And to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. It's not about you. It's about God and what God's doing. Say that with me. It's not about me. It's about God. Do you see what is happening in Joseph's life? 
He looks at all the pieces, the dust, the dirt, the broken things. He looks at what has happened, the pain, all the disconnected moments, and he realizes just a little bit what God has been doing all the way through. Everything that was happening here in his family, in his brothers, everything that was happening here in, in Egypt with the famine and with the geography, everything that was happening here in his heart, and he starts to put everything together. And only God knew everything. It was God who was arranging this. God is a synergizing God, working together all things in the way that could not possibly understand. It's the same thing in your life. He's working together. Even we don't understand it, to bring a good that we cannot possibly create ourselves. God is the one writing our stories. Give him the pen. Let him write. God is doing that, not just in Joseph's life, but in every one of you. Say, he's doing it in my life. You might believe it, but are you living it? Are you living it? Joseph reminds us that in everything we do, it is God working. Even if we can't comprehend it, trace it, understand it, there's so many moments moving in the synergism of God. God's got this under control. Whatever you're walking through, whatever life's giving you right now, God's got this. May that bring peace to you today. It all comes together for the good of those who what? Love him. Starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean your life will be perfect. I love the, some of the testimonies. I don't love what happened. A father who has died. Church hurts. Other things. But God is working. He's synergizing. And why is he doing this? For his glory. For God's glory. God's writing your story for his glory. You can, you can fight that all you want, but that's what God is doing in your life. We get, we get, we get to be a part of what God is doing. Don't take the keys away from him. Don't have a closed hand and say, you are not going to touch this side of my life because there is no better way to live than letting God work together all things in your life. Let's pray. Pastor Dave. So, Father, you are working. You are writing our stories. This is a theme that I'm hitting every week in Genesis because we hear it. We know the principle. We, 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 we have that knowledge in our head, but we don't live it in our hearts so often. For some, it keeps them from accepting Jesus as their Savior because if a God is a God like that and he's allowed this in my life, I don't want anything to do with them. Soften their hearts today, Father. May they kneel to you and bow to you who's the ultimate authority figure in their life because you love them so much. So, Father, this today I pray that there's somebody in here that is yielding their life to you for the first time. But then for the rest of us, Father, that know you as believers and have given our lives to you, May we not hold the pin ourselves. May we, may we let you work together. And there are hurts. I think one of the biggest things I've learned since 
becoming the senior pastor the last three years, is the amount of hurt and the garbage that people are holding on to because of past hurts. God, may that be broken. May we give you our bitterness and our, and our, and our guilt and our shame. Rewrite our story, God, to glorify you. But not only rewrite it, take these ashes and bring them all around full circle. It'll bring glory to you. And I pray this in your son's precious name. I love you, Jesus. Amen.